Thank you. Um, he mentioned the manifesto, uh, questioning my answers, a manifesto for spiritual searchers. That's available to you for free. It's only about 9,000 words, um, so you can read it very quickly. And um, we wrote that uh, with a measure of risk uh, a few months ago, at least I thought so. But uh, we have had really great response from it, and I'm very pleased with that. Uh, as you were talking, John, I was thinking about um, something I heard a rabbi say recently uh, from this esteemed rabbinical school in New York City. He said, between two rabbis, there's at least three opinions. And um, <laughs> I really... <laughs> That really did interest me. Um, he also said that, you know, one of the distinctions, one of the many distinctions between the Protestant community and the Jewish community, it seems that um, when <clears throat> two rabbis are engaged in heated discussion or what we would deem to be an argument, he said that's not something that we tend to have a tolerance for, that they view that as actually being an act of worship. And when he said that, that was quite confusing to me. How could that be viewed as an act of worship? Well, the idea behind that is that there, here are two individuals that are searching. Uh, they're earnestly challenging one another. And um, from their perspective or from God's perspective, they see that as hunger. And uh, maybe we, we could learn a lot from that. Uh, tonight I want to talk to you about alternative wisdom. And uh, I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. If you, if you have a copy of the scripture, you can turn to Matthew's gospel in chapter 5. And I'll join you in just a moment. <clears throat> and what I'm going to start with, though, probably to some might seem a bit inappropriate, but uh, probably not here because it seems that I can get away with far more here than I can in a lot of other places. What speaks volumes uh, concerning you and your trust um, but I want to start out uh, with uh, some lyrics I heard several years ago, and I was reminded of today when I made the comment about your guitar player and called him John Mayer. Uh, this particular lyricist uh, wrote a song a few years ago that when I first heard it, it really captured, I believe, the essence of the gospel, oddly enough. And, um, you know, when you look at the writings of Solomon, in particular, the book of Proverbs, he says in Proverbs chapter 1 that, that wisdom cries out in the streets and in the marketplace. Wisdom is some, not something that is proprietary to the church. And um, it, it should be not embarrassing to us, but it should be challenging to us to know that some of the most powerful prophetic voices today are in genres that uh, we wouldn't typically think, if that makes sense to you. They're not the usual suspects, so to say. And he, um, he wrote this song called Waiting on the World to Change, and I think it fits with what I want to talk to you about. Uh, he said, it's hard to beat the system when you're standing at a distance, so we keep on waiting, waiting on the world to change. Now, if we had the power to bring our neighbors home from war, they would never have missed a Christmas nor ribbons on their door. And when you trust your television, what you get is what you've got. Because when they own all the information, oh, they bend it all they want. How are we doing so far? 
That's why we're waiting, waiting on the world to change. We keep on waiting, waiting on the world to change. It's not that we don't care. We just don't know that the fight ain't fair, or we just know that the fight ain't fair. So we keep on waiting, waiting on the world to change, waiting on the world to change. One day our generation is going to rule the population. That's very revolutionary in its tone, isn't it? But uh, there's a lot of truth in it. So we keep on waiting, waiting on the world to change, and on and on he goes. <clears throat> the way the world system works, and I don't want this to sound conspiratorial in tone, but the way the world system works is while we sleep in the, at night, uh, there is a news cycle that is created that has already decided what we should pay attention to and what is important tomorrow during our waking hours. Again, I don't want you to think I'm a conspiracy theorist, but it's true. Um, I think probably one of my greatest concerns now more than ever before is it seems that the media is discipling the church far more than the gospel. And uh, that may be somewhat of a bold statement to make, um, but if you ponder it long enough, I think probably you'd find some agreement there. Uh, so much of what we hear in the gospel has been westernized and uh, doesn't even remotely resemble what Jesus said or what he intended to say. Um, uh, you know, I think probably one of the most important things that we could tell students initially in their understanding of Scripture is to understand, first of all, you know, these, these are basic principles of interpretation or hermeneutics, is that, first of all, we've got to know that this is an Eastern book, not a Western book. And it's very easy for us to superimpose our ideas on what we think Jesus is saying. Uh, you do understand that Jesus was not crucified for what he said, but for what men thought he said. Uh, for example, you know, when he walks out of the temple on one occasion, he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. And they thought he was speaking about the physical temple. But that's not what he was talking about at all. So I'm constantly reminded, and I've come to remind you as well, that there is no such thing as unbiased thought. The way we see things are not the way they are, it's just the way that we see them, and we bring every old experience into every new experience. And so for me, uh, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm thankful for this, uh, for me at this age and stage of my life, I am falling more and more in love with progressive thinkers because they are exposing my unperceived biased thinking. Um, somebody asked me, since I've been here. Oh, I think it was um, John and Pat that were interrogating me the other night. And um, they, they asked me about where I attended church back home, and I said, well, I haven't been able to find one. And that doesn't mean that, there, you know, there are great communities of faith in the area where we live, um, but I'm just not interested in going somewhere where I hear what I've always heard, um, you know, most people go to church and, or they even study the Bible to prove what they already believe. Um, I guess I didn't get off to a good start here. <clears throat> but uh, I told you I wanted to talk to you about alternative wisdom, and I think that's what Jesus came to introduce. Uh, the, you know, the most common type of wisdom uh, has to do with the mainstream culture, uh, wisdom of, uh, of, the, of a culture. It's what everybody knows. It's a culture's understanding of how we're supposed to live. 
as I mentioned earlier, to which I would say if everybody's saying the same things, evidently somebody is not thinking. An alternative wisdom or a more, what I would call, this second type of wisdom is more subversive. This wisdom questions and it undermines the conventional wisdom and speaks of another reality. And so I think that that really is, you know, what we see in, in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, I'm going to read that passage that I told you to turn to in a moment, uh, Matthew chapter 5. But there was a dominant, and this is very important that you hear this in the early going, or you're going to get way out in the weeds and uh, not really follow what it is I came to talk about. There was a dominant or a unifying narrative that was already in play when Jesus began his public ministry. As a matter of fact, um, when the Gospel of Mark, which was the first Gospel that was written, even though it comes in the arrangement in, in, as the third, Matthew and, or, or the second, Matthew is not the first Gospel. Mark was the first one that was written, and it's a very fast-paced Gospel if you, if you see the distinction between Mark and the other Gospels. Uh, some believe it was the memoirs of Peter, um, given Peter's uh, inability to articulate his thoughts. He had um, Mark as his stenographer, so to speak, as he rehearsed the events that he uh, had experienced in the life and ministry of Jesus. And the, the gospel of Mark opens up talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when we hear as evangelicals, when we hear the word gospel, what do we, what do we define that as being? The good news and I'm not taking issue with that. But this word gospel was not coined in a spiritual setting. The word gospel was a word that had already been used in the secular arena. Um, if you go back, and you can fact check me on this, I, I know these days you have to do your homework. You can fact check me on this, but there was already a gospel that was in play, a, a dominant and a unifying narrative that was already in play when Jesus started his ministry. Now you're going to understand why I want to talk to you about an alternative wisdom as opposed to the conventional wisdom that was in play then as well as it is now. Is everybody with me so far? So, the, it, we could, I don't think that it is doing violence to, to the word itself, but the word gospel, as it was originally used, it's the Greek word eulogion, uh, means to preach good news. But the good news before Jesus arrived was a totally different type of news. It was a conventional wisdom that was being promoted by the Roman Empire, this world superpower that uh, was reaching to the four corners of the world. And um, the good news for them was to conquer and to colonize. Uh, the good news for them is they would go into areas where there were people that were resistant to their ideology and crucify them if they were resistant. So that puts it in juxtaposition or in great contrast, to, doesn't, to what Jesus begins to talk about concerning peace and unconditional love and meekness and all those things that they would interpret as being weakness. Uh, I'm saying this, you know, th for the benefit of everyone, knowing that many of you are probably already aware of this, but the myth that had already been told and sold before Jesus was ever born 
was that Caesar was immaculately conceived, and on, even on the coinage uh, was the imprint that said, the, the insignia that said that Caesar is Lord. Now, that may seem rather innocuous, but it's not. Because, again, I use this terminology, and I'm, I'm going to be repetitious here. There was already this dominant or unifying narrative that was in play when Jesus comes along. And when he begins to bring an alternative form of wisdom, it is turning everything upside down. Now, is that relevant to us today? I, I believe it is because, as I said earlier, most of what we call the gospel is very westernized. It, it fits with a consumer mentality. It, can, it fits with nationalism. Here, I feel myself stepping out on thin ice. Yeah. It doesn't even remotely resemble what Jesus had to say. I, you know, what we're going to be reading to you here in the next few minutes uh, comes from uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, the location of it is significance, significant. The posture that Jesus assumes is significant. And what he says is so counterintuitive and such a counter-narrative to the dominant narrative of the time that I don't think we realize that it was not some Eastern guru that is in an oriental position squatting and just saying some very pious things when he talks about, you know, what we refer to as the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. I, I don't think we realize what kind of shockwaves that sent through that particular audience. Am I making sense to you so far? And, of course, when, when his audience saw him do this, they, they connected the dots and they realized that what was happening here is that Jesus, in essence, is a new lawgiver because their frame of reference went all the way back to Moses who went into a mountain and there he received the law that would govern their particular tribe. And so what Jesus is doing is he's coming along and here he is as a new lawgiver and he's seated, which was the posture of oriental teachers in that day. You know, the students would stand and the t teacher would, would be seated. But it also, to me, his entire body language reflects that he is saying that I am bringing a new realm of authority. I'm bringing an alternative wisdom, a, diff a different way of living and relating to one another. And so what is this phrase that he repeats again and again and again in what I refer to as the constitution of the kingdom of God, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. The preamble is the beatitude, so to speak. What, what, what is the phrase that he repeats again and again and again? You have heard it said, but I say. Now you understand how I'm drawing a contrast between conventional wisdom and alternative wisdom. You've heard it said, but I say. And most of the things that they had heard said, that had been said for centuries, you couldn't even find a reference point for even in their own Torah. It had become very convoluted. Now are you seeing the parallels about how not only was it true 2,000 years ago, but it's true even today because if we hear something over and over and over again, well, it must be true. <laughs> right? Uh, well, you know, somebody with authority has interpreted the Scripture in that manner, so that must be it. 
And we fail to realize, and I've been beating this drum for a long, long time, that Jesus didn't come to make converts, and Jesus didn't come to teach people what to think, but he came to teach people how to think. I I believe there's an emerging generation now. When I say emerging generation, I'm not trying to create any alienation between those of us that are in the evening of our lives from those that are in the morning and afternoon. I'm not trying to create any alienation because I'm coming to understand. uh, Usually it's off the record because, you know, people like Nicodemus, it's easier for them to come under the cover of darkness with the hard questions. Um, that there is not only among the emerging generation as it relates to you guys, but even some of us that are still emerging, that have very serious questions that are being ignored or suppressed. There's very little intelligent humility that I'm encountering these days. I mean, that sounds like a strange pairing of words. Intelligent humility. Um, I'll go so far to quote one great philosopher who says that the majority is always wrong and the minority is rarely right. Now, that doesn't go over very well with American Christians for me to say that. And some of you, I probably lost you just then when I said that. But I'll say it again and I'll qualify it. All right? All right? The majority is almost always wrong and the minority is rarely right. You say, how is that possible? Well, I'll give you one case in point. There was a kangaroo court, a religious court, that arraigned Jesus, tried him, and found him guilty. The same thing happened in Pilate's court, in a civil court. Here is the most innocent man that had ever walked the planet, and the majority found him guilty. And even the minority, the jury was still out with them until the resurrection. Again, I keep qualifying this. Maybe I shouldn't. We talked about this, Pat. I've got to stop qualifying things. Because I want to be liked and I want to be invited back. But I think it's true. What was I? Where was I when you interrupted me? <clears throat> It'll come back to me. Um, I, I think it's true that most of us, whenever our belief systems are challenged, we have the tendency to have this latent fear that if I question this, that I have considered to be non-negotiable and absolutely essential in every other way, then the entire house of cards may collapse. You're not, not sure whether to agree with me or not. Have you been there? I'm not sure I can question that one because if I'm wrong about that, then that, I mean, it's like a domino effect. I may be wrong about this and this and this and this. It's not original to a a well-known voice that has a global platform. Uh, This this particular statement really uh, goes back hundreds of years, and it's just kind of evolved and been extrapolated over time. But this this is my litmus test when it comes 
to truth. First of all, understanding that Jesus is perfect theology. Now, I have a dear friend that that quote has been assigned to him as being original, but really it's, it's centuries old. Jesus is perfect theology. If I can't find it in Jesus, then it is negotiable. Are we still in agreement on that? Yeah, absolutely. Or maybe we ought to realize that what we have known up until this point is not necessarily inaccurate, but very possibly incomplete. I may have asked this question in my previous visits here. How many of you right now at this very moment that you passionately believe certain things that at one time you didn't believe? So I didn't, I didn't get much of a response. I mean, that was, that was, I was taking a survey just then, which requires the lifting of the hand, all right? Just as I am without one plea, all right? I'll ask the question again. How many of you right now passionately believe certain things that at one time you didn't believe? Okay. If that is true, is it possible that there are still course adjustments that have to be made in the future? It doesn't necessarily mean, again, that everything that you have believed up until this point is inaccurate, but it's very possibly incomplete. You know, the example is clear in the book of Acts whenever this man uh, known as Apollos, who Luke gives some pretty strong accolades to, he says that he was not only mighty in the Scripture, he had this amazing command of the Scripture, but he was eloquent of speech. You don't usually find that kind of gift mix, somebody that not only has, you know, an amazing command of truth, but also is very articulate. And that's the way he's described, but when he meets this couple called Aquila and Priscilla, and he engages in conversation with them, the Scripture says, and, you know, it just kind of teases us. You wonder uh, what, that, what the full conversation was all about. It just says that they explained to him more perfectly the way. Hmm. So, at the point of redundancy, I will say it again. It's not that what we have known until this point is inaccurate, but it's very possibly incomplete. You know, it's, it really is not the things that, that we don't know that give us trouble, but it's the things that we're certain of that just aren't so. And so, <clears throat> coming back to what I told you I was going to talk about, is that there's, uh, there is this counter-narrative that Jesus introduces. And he begins to talk about a different form of good news. And over and over again, he says, you have heard it said, but I say. You have heard it said, but I say. Now, before I get into, into those verses, um, can you bear with me just another minute? Okay. Uh, remembering again that the world runs on story. In Jesus' day, these were the stories that were at work. This is not original to me. If you want to have further conversation about it after the meeting, I'll be glad to do that. But the first story, and this is worthy of taking notes on. I very seldom tell, tell people to take notes on anything that I'm talking about. But the, 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 one, of the domin, one of the stories that were at play during Jesus' time, and see if you see the parallels, there was a domination story. This was propagated by Caesar and upheld by Pilate. And the Sadducees and the Herodians were in on it. Secondly, there was a revolution story. These are the Zealots. If you, know, if you remember anything about the Zealots, they wanted to overthrow the government. 
There was a purification story that was going on. This is the scribes and the Pharisees. There was a victimization story. These were the Galileans, the farmers, the sinners. And then there was an isolation story that was going on. These were the Essenes that had totally left the system and gone out into the wilderness to separate themselves. Now, I'm not going to take time to elaborate that and unpack it further, but you can certainly see the parallels in those stories that were in play. You can also see the polarization that is obvious that was being created there then and how that uh, it parallels to our time. So does that sound familiar to you at all? I mean, the domination is us over them. Follow this. The revolution is us versus them. The purification story is us versus some of us. Right? The victimization story is us in spite of them, and the isolation story is us away from them. <laughs> All of that? Okay. The domination story is us over them. The revolution story is us versus them. The purification story is us versus some of us. The victimization story is us in spite of them. And the isolation story is us away from them. You know, that last one kind of reminds me of, you know, the, the chicken little theologians that are constantly, because fear still sells today, that are constantly, you know, striking panic and fear in the hearts of people that they are very possibly going to miss the imminent evacuation of the isolationist. I said that pretty well, I think. I remember 20 years ago when I was in a, uh, this big uh, uh, flagship revival culture church, and uh, tw this was 20 years ago, and, and I just innocently, you know, your, your speech will betray you, you know. I just innocently said, you know, I don't, I don't believe in the evacuation of the church, but I do believe in the coming of the Lord. And I said, so you can, you know, you can unpack your bags because the flight's been canceled. And then I went on talking. And uh, one of the leaders came to me afterwards and said, dude, you can't say that here. <laughs> I, I, I say what? You know, really what I was doing, I was not taking anything away from them. I was even, even get, really giving them a, a broader understanding of what the kingdom of God is really about. You know, Jesus said we're to pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. If that's not truth, then we should be praying thy kingdom go. Get us out of here, right? <laughs> so along comes this teacher, this rabbi that had been vetted by religion and found wanting. He comes out of a ghetto and he starts preaching an alternative wisdom. It took me a while to get to my text, but finally I'm here. Yeah. Matthew 5. Uh, I believe it starts about verse 38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. You ever wonder what that really implies? 
I mean, this is really an upside-down kingdom. Everything about the kingdom of God is the antithesis of the way we think things are supposed to be. The way up is down. The way you add is by subtracting. The way you multiply is by dividing. And the way you live is by dying. Remember I told you things are not the way you see it. It's just the way you see it. And so when Jesus says, you know, you can imagine what kind of impact that had on this. Is if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Was you know was he just using mere hyperbole here? Was he speaking, in you know metaphorically? Is that what he was doing? Uh, I wish I had time to unpack this in the way that it really should be. But it, in order for me to strike you on your right cheek, remembering that in, in the Jewish culture that the left hand was assigned to certain menial tasks. I'll just leave it at that and let your imagination run wild. The right hand always spoke of authority. So in order for me to strike you on the right cheek, I'd have to hit you backhanded like that, right? You still with me? You, you see the imagery? I mean, there's it's, it's nothing really deep. But it was for them, and it was very provocative as well. He said, so if you do that, he said, just turn the other cheek. Oh, now, this is an alternative wisdom because, see, uh, there was this superiority, this consciousness of superiority that existed um, among the Romans that felt that these people that were under their occupation were inferior to them. And so it was not uncommon for a Roman to strike someone that it was Jewish or someone that was not Roman in such a manner. He says, turn the other. Well, if, he, if Josh turns the other, I can't strike him this way, can I? Or that'd be awkward, wouldn't it? So I'd have to strike him with an open hand, which would imply that he's my equal. Jesus is turning everything upside down. I love that. That's beautiful, isn't it? That's an alternative wisdom. See, I'm, I'm not sure that we understand. We were talking about this on the way in from Santa Barbara the other day. I'm not sure that we, especially today, that we understand that uh, I think weak is the new strong. Uh, ha have you noticed that there's, there seems to be, even in the secular uh, community, uh, there s seems to be heightened awareness and discussion about vulnerability? You know, I think they're finally getting the wisdom of the cross that Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians. They're finally, you know, the, why would he refer to the cross as being wisdom? Why did he do that? I mean, he's not speaking metaphorically. He's talking about the actual crucifixion again itself. He's talking about not only a man that's been bludgeoned, who said that he was a savior, and also said that he was a king. And Pilate, you know, had told him, he said, you know, they're saying that you're king, we're your subjects. And don't you understand that I have your life in my hands? And the only response that Jesus gave him, he says, you don't have any authority over me other than what's given to you from above. And I think he was actually toying with him when he said that. Are you still with me? So here's, here's a man that's supposed to have authority. This, here's a man that says that he's a king and he's come to establish a kingdom and he's not only been bludgeoned beyond res, reg, recognition, but he's ab, absolutely stripped naked. I mean, we, we have such a sanitized portrayal of the crucifixion itself. I mean, it's bad enough that his body 
had been beaten beyond recognition. It would take dental records to have identified this man. I mean, Isaiah saw it. He said his visage was marred more than any other man. And I don't have time to, you know, go into all of the, the intricacies and the detail of what happened to him in the beatings before even being taken to the cross. And he says, that's wisdom. That's where, where, where real authority is. Now, I'm trying to be careful here in the way I frame this because, you know, the, the very air that we breathe, the thing that's in the air right now, really has to do more with domination. And it has nothing to do with the gospel. Now you understand why I say I'm concerned that the church is being more discipled by the media than it is by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that, that's, that really is troubling to us here in the West, isn't it? And so, he goes on, he says, If anyone sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Now, he's talking about two different layers of clothing. And, you know, this is very simple, but I think is very poignant in its application. He says, if, you know, this, this was something that was common in that day, especially, you know, many of these people, their only possessions were their clothing itself. And he says, if they, if they sue you and they take your outer garment, he said, go ahead and give them your tunic also. Which would mean, you know, again, this sounds like so much hyperbole, but what Jesus would imply is that the person would be naked. Which would really, if you go back into the Old Testament and you, you, you look and see uh, uh, what, what it means when the Bible talks about looking on somebody else's nakedness, it has to do with shame. So the shame, it's the whole reversal of things. It's an alternative wisdom. So the shame that they're trying to impose upon you actually comes back on them. Beautiful. Then I don't want to take too much time on this. He says, if anyone forces you to go a mile, go, hit, go two miles. Now, many of you are already ahead of me, so slow down. All right? You already know that <clears throat> Roman soldiers, I mean, this was a part of the law of the time, uh, you know, if, if they were traveling from one place to another and uh, their pack became too heavy, they could just conscript anybody they wanted to and say, here, you got to carry this and you would have to do it. And Jesus said, because that was the law. But he says, if they do that, go ahead and go the second mile because Jesus knew that if they went the second mile, that that person would be unemployed that was requiring you to do that. Now, I mean, how can we make practical application of this? I think most of the things that go wrong in our lives or most of the things that happen to us, we are usually asking the wrong questions. Now, to me, this is not theoretical. This is something I've learned just in the last few years because of the things that I've not just gone through, but I've learned to grow through. Wisdom stops asking, why is this happening to me? And real wisdom begins to say, what is it saying to me? Are you still with me? If you don't take anything away from what I've said this morning or tonight, make sure you take that one. Wisdom stops saying, why is this happening to me? And it says, what is this saying to me? Because in reality, our real teachers are not in settings like this. 
I mean, this is, this, is a, this is a very sterile, safe environment. But your real teachers are the people that betray you. The real, real teachers are the ones that have been disloyal. Really? That's an alternative wisdom, isn't it? Uh, the person that has taught me the most about unconditional love that has taught me the most about trusting in God cost me a lot of money. Yeah, really. They're not even aware that they were my teacher. I mean, that, that just does not fit with the way we process things, does it? I mean, right now, who, who is in irritation in your life? Who is somebody that just continues to grate on you? Don't think about them too long, all right? I don't want to lose you here before I'm done. But who is it that just keeps coming around, coming around, coming around? You don't realize that this is, this is where I take even further risk. I like, I like what Paula D'Arcy says, is that God comes, God comes to us disguised as our own life. <laughs> Ouch. So then he goes on, I've got to hurry, because I feel like I'm losing you. <laughs> uh, let's jump down to what it is, verse uh, 43. You've heard it said that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his son to rise upon the evil and on the good, and sends rain upon the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I love what John Stewart, this uh, satirical humorist of our time, says. You know, it, this is his commentary on what Jesus said there. He says, remember to love your neighbor as yourself, and if you hate yourself, then just please leave your neighbor alone. I think that's good advice. But I think the question that Jesus is raising here, uh, and I'll encourage you, I'm almost done, all right? <laughs> I think the real question that Jesus is raising here is why is it we are secretly afraid of people that are different than we are? Yeah, I think what scares us the most is not their difference, but the possibility that they might be more like us than we're willing to admit. At least for me, uh, the change that I want to see take place in other people usually is the change that needs to take place in me. Hmm. When Jesus said... Uh, you are to love your enemies. I think he's really confronting us with the imaginations that we have created about people. You know, it's you know, a word that I hear used often these days, xenophobia, people that are different than we are. And this is not just about skin color. This is, you know, it's a very tribal and polarizing uh, thing that's going on in the world today and uh, ramping up even more. 
I think probably what we ought to ask ourselves, why do we perceive them as being enemies? Maybe they're only enemies because we don't know their story. I mean, how many people, I mean, it, can, can you just be honest with me here for a minute? I mean, I'm not going to tell anybody. Okay, can you just be honest with me here for a minute and, and say that there have been people that you have perceived as being enemies uh, for an extended period of time, and then when you finally became acquainted with their real story, you realized that uh, that was all an illusion. It was a complete illusion. But you see, here, here in the West, though, we have convinced ourselves that our enemies are God's enemies. But God doesn't really have any enemies. <laughs> now, I can see the studious ones among you that are already cross-referencing passages of Scripture. Yeah, I know where you're going. But let me just put it to you this way. Remember, I'm talking about alternative wisdom. In order for somebody to be an enemy, they have to be a potential rival. And God has no rivals. I mean, that's what we've been singing about today. There's none like you. There's none beside you. <laughs> There's nothing above you. Everything is beneath you. <laughs> right? I mean, I, I think that the psalmist did get a flash of revelation and insight when he said that God sits in the heavens and laughs while the heathen rages. But isn't it true that we have concluded that these people are enemies, so they must be God's enemies? Uh, have you ever heard of Abraham Heschel? Abra you know, that's the response I get from most charismatics. That, that wasn't meant to have a condescending tone to it. Really, not at all. A brilliant Jewish theologian and philosopher, he said... Uh, I've come to the conclusion that any God that is my God and not your God is an idol. You know, when I first read that, I, I, I was sent reeling for a long time. See, the, the thing that is problematic about that, the thing that is even troubling for a lot of people when they first hear that is that, you know, they're already beginning to think of all these different expressions of deities around the world. But you have to understand that I believe, make sure you don't misunderstand this, I believe unequivocally that Jesus is the way. He is not one of the ways, he is the way. So everybody can take a deep breath, all right, it's going to be all right. Just save your nerves for a real emergency. I, believe, I don't believe that Jesus is one of the ways. I believe he is the way, but I think it's entirely possible that, uh, that people in other ways can find the way. Yeah. How's that? You say, well, I'm not sure. I, I need some more assurance. Okay. I'll just borrow the words of Jesus. He says, I cause the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. I cause the sun to shine upon the just and the unjust. That's indiscriminate. That's far more inclusive. There's a word that's been getting me in trouble lately. It's far more inclusive than we realize. 
The scope of His love, as far as I'm concerned, is far more inclusive and even inescapable than we ever imagined. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. The world needed to be reconciled to Him. He didn't need to be reconciled to the world. You know, the death of Jesus did not have to happen in order for God to forgive us. Wow. Here it falls silent here when I say that. I'm not, I'm not minimizing the death of Jesus. I'm not minimizing the atonement. Really what I'm doing is giving you an enhanced understanding of it if you've not considered that up until this point. The death of Jesus was proof that He absorbed everything that originated in our misunderstanding of God. That's why He says, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. This is total lunacy what they're doing. That's okay. I'll absorb it. Let's say, if I ask you the question, is God, is God love? Yes, sure He is. God is love. God is not lovely or love-like. He is love. The first breath that was ever taken on this planet was not taken by a man named Adam. The first breath that was ever taken on this planet was taken by love. The whole reason why he set everything into motion in this material universe is the infinite one was not satisfied with being God all by himself, but wanted to replicate himself, and that's what love does. It wants to reproduce. It does not withhold. Okay? <laughs> so who are my enemies? Who are your enemies? See, it's more important what's going on behind our eyes than what's going on in front of our eyes. And that's what Jesus is confronting here. I think that more than anything right now, the, the real good news needs to be in not trying to convince people that they are lost by threatening them with hell or missing the evacuation. <laughs> or not trying to present a more powerful argument about how right you are and how wrong they are. The real gospel is convincing people how loved they are. Where they are, the way they are. And that God does, His love does not change as a result of them repeating the sinner's prayer. It has to do with consciousness. It has to do with coming into an awareness of what He's known about them before they were ever conscious of themselves. That's an alternative wisdom, isn't it? That's totally different than what we've been told. And so, in, in wrapping up here, when, when I see... Have I gone too long? Okay. When I see... Uh, I, I used to, before I began to have a change in perspective, 
I used to get gravely concerned about what I would see happening on the news and how things, not only in this country, but around the world, how things were becoming increasingly more polarized. But now I'm actually realizing that that is the perfect environment for what the gospel of Jesus really originally intended to begin to thrive. That's why I drew the parallels between the first century and the 21st century. That's why the church, following the resurrection, began to grow exponentially. And we have totally misinterpreted the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. You know, go into all the world and preach the gospel and coerce and convince people. <laughs> no. That's not what it says. But that's what we've made it to be. That's what we've made it to be. You know, there's a... I, I, I can't remember the man's name right now, but he's uh, considered one of the foremost church historians alive today. And, uh, I mean, he's done his research. He's done his due diligence. And, and he brought out that in... in the early days of Christendom, that uh, the reason why that it grew exponentially, the reason why that I think upwards of 50, over 50 percent of the Roman Empire was converted to the way, not to Christianity in, in the version that we have, of, but to the way, was not because they were actively pursuing people on street corners, but they were living in community, in love. And it became so incredibly attractive to quote-unquote pagans that they begin to engage them and tell them, what, what is it about you people? What, you seem to have peace in tumultuous times. What is it about you people? You, you seem to love one another. And there's, you know, there's, there, you, can I frame it this way? You, you seem to be living from a higher consciousness than the rest of us. We, we shouldn't be afraid of that kind of terminology because that's essentially what Paul was teaching when he talked about having your mind renewed, be not conformed to this world, right? Being renewed in the spirit of your mind. And so from uh, what he has researched, he actually discovered that usually what happened when people would engage in that manner is that they were just invited into community. It wasn't like, oh, wow, this person is ripe for the sale. So we've got to share with them the four spiritual laws. And we've got to tell them it's important. You must be born again. <laughs> no, they invited them into relationship. And it usually wasn't until upwards of two years that they were even given the opportunity to be baptized in water. But no, what we've got to do is we've got to get them to say the sinner's prayer, and we've got to get them in a baptismal tank as soon as we possibly can. To seal the deal. Hmm. Yeah. I'm just leaping over a lot here. So I, I'll say this uh, because it has been my experience. Remember I referenced Paula D'Arcy earlier who said that God is constantly coming to us disguised as our own life. I think that, for me at least, that 
God is always coming to me through people that are other than me. I don't always notice it. I'm beginning to become more aware of it. And you say, what do you mean by that? Well, have you ever noticed that in Jesus' resurrection appearances, that he is appearing in forms that are foreign to them? The woman at the tomb thought he was a gardener. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, I mean, talk about xenophobia. Are you a stranger? And he even began to talk to them, you know, beginning with Moses and the prophets, expounding all things concerning himself. What kind of message must that have been in Luke 24? And they still didn't get it. And they had been followers. Or he appears to the disciples at the Sea of Galilee, and they think he's a fisherman. So maybe it's in the otherness that is all around us that is pointing out our, our well-concealed egos that is fueled by the need to be superior to someone else. And we don't realize, as Jesus made it very clear here in Matthew chapter 5, as I come in for a landing, is that there is no us in them. There is no us in them. There are no insiders and outsiders. No. Even Paul was bold enough to say that on Mars Hill when he talked about the unknown God. And he said, hey, listen, we're all one race. Is that what he said? We're all one blood, we're all one race. I love it that he even quotes their Greek philosophy. Yeah. If we're going to engage the culture, then we're going to have to operate from an alternative wisdom that Jesus has offered to us. And we have to realize how that we have superimposed a lot of our ideas over what we thought he said, that he never said at all. He never said it all. Amen. You know, I wish, uh, and I believe in impartation. <laughs> I'm not laughing at impartation. This is really, uh, I mean, uh, to come to this place of consciousness is not something that can be transferred to someone, as I'm convinced, through the laying on of hands. No. It comes through you wrestling yourself. It comes, it comes with you being here on a Sunday night in this small meeting and you're hearing somebody like me say things that it just is going against the grain. Good. Good. Because God loves you so much that he will not leave you the way that you are. And he loves us so much that he'll... He'll let, let you go on believing a lie about him and not try to change your mind. But love is so relentless that it, it always wins. Did you understand what I just said? That, I mean, how many of you believed certain lies about God for a long time and he never tried to convince you otherwise? Well, that's the way unconditional love is. It's not manipulative. It's not insecure. It doesn't have a need to try to change your mind like that. No, it doesn't. 
You know, on the other hand, being a human, if one of my sons believed a lie about me, I have three sons, and if I discovered that one of them believed a lie about me and what my intentions were, what my motives were, because of my insecurity, I would go to every effort to try to convince them that what they had been taught, what they'd been told, was a total lie. Why? Because I'm insecure. But God's not insecure. So he'll just let you go on believing a lie for a long time and just keep loving you, loving you, loving you, loving you. I heard one man say that, you know, God, you know, his relationship with you is far more important than the rules, and the way he punishes you is by loving you more. Now, we'd, we'd prefer a punitive gospel, wouldn't we? Because we think it's quid pro quo, it's, it is transactional in nature. No, it's not that at all. Because he's already decided about you before you ever made a decision. <laughs> yeah. Amen. So I wish I could just lay hands on people and impart this to them. But it's not going to happen that way. It's going to come again with you wrestling with your questions. It's going to come, you know, whether you are able to voice them or you're able to find a safe place, a haven, where you can engage people and say, you know what, I'm not sure about that. That's okay. That's okay. Remember, uh, I think a couple of years ago, I don't think it was last year, but a couple of years ago, I talked to you about the relationship that existed between Jacob and Esau. And remember, I mean, there, there was this division between them, and after years they were reconciled, and uh, they, they had certain perceptions about one another that were totally distorted. Remember these fraternal twins that were so different in so many different ways? And then when they experience reconciliation, what did Esau say? about his perceived nemesis and his brother. He said, when I saw you, I saw the face of God. Wow. Maybe when God is coming to us through other people, he is trying to enhance our perception so that we see the image of God in them that has just been simply marred. That's all it is. Amen. Alternative wisdom. Yeah. So, Lord, we humble ourselves before you here this evening. And um, we just ask that you would help us to see that how we love anybody is how we love everybody. How we love ourselves is how we love every other self. I mean, if you can let me pray this on your behalf as in some intercessory role, uh, may we all just fall into this ocean of love. May we all realize that divine love is loving in a very unrestricted way, without qualification, criteria, judgments, determination of the worthiness of the objects of that love. Anybody say amen to that? Yeah. Reveal to us, Lord, uh, our exceptionalism and our elitism.
Help us to see just how indiscriminate and unconditional your love is. Maybe it's appropriate for us to ask, as David did in Psalm 92, would you anoint my head with fresh oil? Can you ask him to do that? Would you just anoint my head with fresh oil? May that, may that oil, that symbol of wisdom, may it just flow down over my eyes and alter my perception. May it so saturate and soak into, my, into the very cellular level of who I am that I'm able, that we're all able to experience what it means, really, what it really means, not as we've heard it referenced to just metaphorically, what it really means to be the body of Christ. The body of Christ. What is, which is not restrict, restricted to our religious expressions. But is far larger in its scope. I thank you for offending my mind. I thank you for taking me on that long journey, that 18-inch journey from the way I think to where the heart of the matter really is, to the real heart of the matter. Thank you for that tonight, Lord. We receive your embrace, and we, we intend to uh, extend that embrace that has been extended to us Tomorrow, we're going to be confronted. <laughs> You're so faithful in that. You're going to come to us through otherness. <laughs> yeah. And let us walk in humility toward that. Let us walk in humility. Let us uh, be able, Lord, to lose our life that we might find it. As you said, if we seek to save our life, that we would lose it. But if we lose it for your sake, that we would discover it. May we discover what real abundant life is, what the real life is, and that all this other stuff that we've thought is life is nothing more than window dressings. Let us discover what Merton talked about, which is our true self that has been so covered by our false self. Thank you for that. Thank you for teaching us how to die. To die daily, as Paul said, that we might, cons- we might experience ongoing resurrections into higher levels of glory and higher levels of perception of your love. Amen. Amen.